0: Welcome to the Continuing Education Podcast for CASA Volunteers, connecting you with experts who can advance your advocacy for children and families. I'm your host, Maggie Halpin, and this is CASA on the Go. Hi, everyone. Hope you are finding creative ways to sustain yourselves and stay cool in these toasty dog days of summer that we're wading through. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us for what I hope will be a refreshing conversation with our wonderful guest today, the one and only Naomi Sawyer. Um, I'm so happy that you're here with us, Naomi, and I'll just uh, pass it over to you to introduce yourself.
1: Yes, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here and I'm just really excited to share some of my experience working in the child welfare child welfare field. Um, so I have been working in the field for, I think it's been eight years now. Um, started out as a case manager right out of college, did not know what I was getting myself into, but have really enjoyed just working and advocating for kids. Um So case managed for a while, licensed foster families for a while, and then moved into the CASA world, which was a lot of fun. Um, Worked with the Fort Worth program for a little bit, um, working with volunteers, and then went on to work at Texas CASA as a collaborative family engagement coach. And then in the midst of all of that, had the opportunity and um, my husband and I were approached to actually um taken a sibling group of 3 that I had previously been the case manager for and so did that very briefly and were able to get them with a relative and so um all of those experiences have been extremely eye opening and I've learned so much along the way so again super happy to be here
0: well I am just thrilled that we are going to get to learn um from your deeply rooted perspective uh that you I mean when I was trying to think of how to introduce you, it's was like, I don't even know how to capture all of the different, you know, roles and ways that you've, uh, like, experienced walking alongside youth, advocating for youth and families. Um, and so thank you so much for making the time for this conversation because I think, you know, that the how we partner with foster caregivers and kinship caregivers is something I really wish I had, learned more about and been more educated about when I first started with CASA. So let's talk about the incredibly important role that foster caregivers and kinship caregivers play in the lives of so many children and families here in Texas. Um, Historically, you know, I think including on many of the cases that I worked on years ago, unfortunately, foster parents were kind of seen as just temporary caregivers who were caring for children and youth day to day, but otherwise weren't really considered part of the child's team in a more holistic sense. You know, they often like had little or no communication whatsoever with the child's parents or family members. So would you talk a little about this significant shift that we're starting to see in the child welfare system around how, you know, the foster caregiver can really actually be a partner with the parent?
1: Yeah, I think that shift is huge and crucial, and I've I've really loved seeing that shift. I remember when I first started case managing, and I w- I was curious why you know we didn't get a lot of information um, as w- while I was working with foster families, and we would have we would get that call for a child needing a placement, and we we would get minimal information, and then it was it sort of just um, stayed in that we didn't know when court was happening, and I remember as of naive, straight out of college wondering, you know, why aren't our foster families invited to court? I mean, they could give the most up-to-date update on these kids and how they're doing and what routines they're in. Um, And then further, going further on um, with kind of the stigma around the, almost like a co-parenting relationship between foster families and uh, the parents of the children and how really seamless that could be. And I could always see an extreme difference on the cases that I was working on where the foster parents worked closely with the the parents on the case um, versus, you know, we would have kind of, with that stigma, some foster families either not knowing or um, just not feeling comfortable and, you know, wanting to drop the kids off in the back of the CPS office instead of coming in and meeting the family. And you just would see the difference with the kids. and how it was like this world of everyone works together and there's no conflict and there's no, you know, this is just, you know, best case scenario. And so I think, like I said, that shift is crucial in, you know, we can work together. That's what's best for kids. It creates a seamless transition when, you know, foster parents are asking Um, the parents, Hey, what did their routine look like before they came into care? What were their favorite foods? What did they do for fun? What did you do when, you know, they were upset? Um, that was always just a kind of an uphill battle when we didn't have that communication of, um, you know, the child won't go to sleep. I don't, I've tried everything. And then you, you know, I talked to the parent for the foster parent and it's, you know, he always fell asleep to music. Um, So just, you know, little things that we think as little things are really big things. And just trying to get closer to co-parenting and um, both everyone having a voice. I mean, if we can all work together, all have a seat at the table and be looked at as you know, that foster parent is looked at as an expert while they have the children in their home because they know exactly what's going on and they know exactly what the children are doing and what their likes and dislikes are. And then the parents are the expert on their kids because they're their kids and they're, they've are they been raising them. And that's just kind of the hope and, and what I've seen work out so well um, and just love seeing us get closer and closer to that.
0: Yeah, Oh that's so well put I think especially you know what you're saying about like honoring like let's honor the expertise of the foster caregiver who is caring for this child day to day and simultaneously we have to honor the expertise of the parent this is their child you know they have more experience than anyone else when it comes to how best to care for them how to um, meet their needs so that's awesome. And, you know, I think we've also learned so much about how important it is for a child or youth's connections to their family, you know, not just their parent, um, although that's obviously so important, but also to other, you know, people who are important to them to continue to honor those connections while they are living in a foster home. Could you maybe talk about some ways that foster caregivers can honor familial relationships while the child is with them?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's something that I've learned more and more about as I've worked in the child welfare system. And I think most recently as a collaborative family engagement coach, helping teams navigate that and how can we really preserve preserve this? Um, And I think, again, I think, and I'll say it over and over again, but bringing everyone to the table and just learning from each other and, um, just asking questions like, how did you all celebrate birthdays? Um, how did you all, what did you all do when they, you know, got good grades or what did you do? Just kind of those, um, you know, traditional, uh, Cultural uh, preservation, like how can we do that even on a very simplistic level of um, just what did you do to start summer off? Um, Just because, again, it maintains consistency while also preserving those family um, ties and roots And so I know there was one time where um, one of our foster parents had a little girl placed in their home and they threw a huge birthday party and invited tons of people over. And it just was so scary to that little girl and no one expected that. Um, But at the next week at a visit with the mom, she said, oh, we just always go to Chuck E. Cheese and keep it pretty simple. And um, so it just was like an eye-opening experience of like, we felt like that was what was best, and we wanted to do a huge thing. But what would have meant most to that little girl was just what she had always done and going to Chuck E. Cheese and then, you know, inviting mom, inviting the parents and their caregivers, um, being open to just simply talking about family, giving a platform for kids when they talk about it. Let's Let's talk about it. And I think that's, again, just something that's not always – discussed or, um, you know, brought to the attention of everyone is, is how, again, how big those little things can be.
0: Yeah. What a powerful point about how it's, there's not always even just space to talk with kids about their family, about maybe what they're feeling might be missing, uh, what Mm. might be meaningful to them. And I think, A lot of times, that can be that can that like kind of like trepidation around creating that space can come from a good place of wanting to be protective of the child or youth and their feelings, but just recognizing that the impact actually, if we're avoiding (laughs) um, creating space for kids to talk about, you know, to talk about their family, it might it's might not be a positive impact that it's actually really important that they know that there is space. If if that's something that they're wanting to talk about.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And again, if, if you're talking about moving towards a co-parenting relationship, then you do, I mean, and if you look at just a, you know, you're, you may be divorced and you are co-parenting. Now you do talk, this is what I did here. And this is what, you know, we do here. And so it's just normalizing, that back and forth, normalizing, you know, we love learning about your family. We love learning, you know, what you did. And because again, it w- if our focus is on family preservation, family reunification, then that's what we have to be preparing for um, and setting these, these children and youth up for. So whatever we can do to best um, get to that point is, is what we need to do.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I really appreciate that comment. Um, and thinking about like kinship caregivers in particular, um, you know we know that relatives or you know family friends or um, people in the child and Families network who are caring for the children need a support team around them too to make sure that the placement you know, is thriving, the placement doesn't break down. Was that important in your own experience, or any thoughts on how advocates can help facilitate that?
1: I think the biggest thing for me when it comes to kinship or fictive kin um, is acknowledging that there's little to no preparation. You're just essentially called, asked, you know, told minimal about the situation, asked to have those children in your home. And so, um, you know, when we talk about foster families and they've gone through the licensing process for upwards of six months to a year and really prepared their home and they're ready and they've gone through training. Um, you know, victive, kin, kinship, we don't necessarily have that. And so um, even for me as a social worker, I wasn't prepared for everything that I was opening my home to and I was so excited to be able to be a safe place for those kids and um, enjoyed it so much. But I almost felt felt like there was less of a support there than for a foster family just because it's well you know the kids um maybe assumptions of you know the history you know the story when when a lot of times we don't so just being aware and acknowledging you know there may need to be more support because they haven't been through everything that a foster family would need to go to to become licensed and so also emphasizing their voice and wanting to hear from them and talking to them. I mean, if, if they're placed with family, most of the time you have access to those, you know, traditions and culture and, um, all of those things. And so I think, and for me, one of the shocking things for me was how often, even if a child was placed with kin or victim kin, them not being aware that they could become licensed as a foster family and receive that support and those benefits and a case manager that's really there mainly for you and the children. Um, And so that was when I licensed foster families, I would always be surprised over a kinship family calling me saying, I need to, I would like to go through the licensing process. I've had the children for a year. And I would always think, oh my gosh, we could have been offering so much more support if you would have known this earlier on. So I think for CASA, even asking those questions, Hey, did you know that you could become licensed, um, and get more support? And it is an extensive process, but you do have a lot of, um, those benefits that you wouldn't have if you weren't licensed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. And you mentioned a couple of times, like how can we honor and listen to the voices of foster caregivers and kinship caregivers who, have so much expertise and investment in the like in the children's well-being and one you know thing that comes to my mind is um the possibility of like involving these caregivers in family meetings or you know on the collaborative family on the family team and that I will tell you like I don't think I went to a single family or you know permanency conference or family team meeting or anything years ago when I was working cases where there was a foster caregiver or kinship caregiver and it really seems like like again maybe it's not always the right you know the role that they're meant to play on that you know for that family but I can see for so many families that that could be a real missed opportunity so do you have any thoughts on
1: that? Yeah, I think that's huge. Um, And I think you're right. I think that there are times where it may not be best, but I think just simply asking that. Um, I know when we did our team meetings for CFE, it was, you know, who should be here? And if someone doesn't think that a party should be there, why not? Um, And just talking things through and being transparent. And, um, you know, I think that shifting away from meetings where it's, oh, well, okay, I'll talk to the foster parent or I'll go talk to the caregiver. Um, and instead having them there, because then, you know, we don't have to do any of that. And we, we have all of the experts in the room and working well together. And so I think, yes, there are times where, um, maybe not everyone needs to be there, but the meetings I've been a part of where foster parent and parents are there and, um, we're able to just talk holistically about what's going on. um, We've gotten a lot further than kind of having those missing pieces. I mean, you want to have, you want to have all of the pieces when you're talking about what's, what's in the best interest of the child and where we're headed. And so I think um, everyone just has knowledge that each other doesn't have. And if we can have it all there at the same time, why not?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Where our goal is, you know, hopefully be able to reunify this family. And so to have right. everyone on the same wavelength working towards that goal together. Um, right. Yeah. So important.
1: I have so many stories about families who just worked so well together and ended up being even a support after all the professionals left the situation when the case was closed, even just being resource support, um, for each other. And then for the foster families, I mean, they loved still being able to be a part, um, of those kids life. And so I just think that that's best case scenario. And I know it doesn't always work that way. Um, but I just always loved seeing those outcomes. That
0: I, that's, yeah, I appreciate that because it helps kind of like shift, you know, maybe historically the word transactional could be kind of like, Applied to like how yeah. our system has kind of like interacted with foster families. like right. you know, your role is just this like temporary caregiver and 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 that doesn't do anything to honor the real relationships that are right. then forming between those folks and the children and youth that they are that who are living in their homes that they're caring for, that they're being with during this really difficult time. And so, like, I think the approach that you are articulating does so much more to like make visible those real relationships that are forming. Right. Yeah. One thing, you know, that I wanted to just kind of touch on is um, I think sometimes there can be like if advocates are working, you know, closely, and and hopefully we are, like, developing relationships with parents, with the child's family, and with their um, placement. And I think sometimes something that we need advocates to just really be thinking about is making sure that there's not, like, a bias that is unconsciously developing towards the foster parent. Right. Um, yeah. Do you have any like thoughts on just the importance of awareness around that dynamic?
1: Yeah, I think I think, again, tying into what we've talked about so far and not making it. I think sometimes when you step into that realm of having that bias, you're making it an either or and not a working together where kind of partnering where hopefully co-parenting and what resources a foster family has obtained and gone through training for and prepared for um, acknowledging that you know we can we can you know transfer that over to the family and work seamlessly so that we you know can have that continuum of care and it may not look the same but at the root of it all um, a child I think I think, and from what I've heard, working with children, they their preferences is going to be family over materialistic things. Those family ties and roots are so crucial to their well being and um, where they you know go in life and how they feel. That um, I know that it's easy to kind of dip into those biases, but just actively trying to stay out of them. And if we have them, if we find ourselves falling into that. Um, just sitting down and taking a step back and writing down why do we feel that way and why do we have this perspective and and how can we get back to working as a whole and working to have just kind of that seamless uh, partnering relationship between both foster parent caregiver and then and then the family
0: yeah that reminded me of this story that I heard in training a long time ago that really stuck with me of like about this very topic like you know we might see a foster family in a big fancy house that's just kind of able to provide material things um that a family isn't able to provide uh we know that so many families in the child welfare system are disproportionately living in poverty and so the story I heard was uh the trainer said like you know we asked this child, you know, living in this, like, big, beautiful, fancy home, like, uh, we're just kind of checking in at some point in the case, like, you know, where, where do you want to live, you know, and the child said, oh, I want to, I want to keep living here, um, but, of course, I would want my family to come live here with me, you know, it's just, like, this is nice, but I, it wasn't even, like, it was unfathomable to that child, like, to, to go on with her life without, her family, and so right. just just keeping in mind the minimum sufficient level of care, the right of children to be raised by their families whenever safely possible, and the right of parents to raise their children whenever safely possible, so important, um, as we are trying to help facilitate that kind of more partnering approach um, with foster parents that you have so beautifully articulated, Naomi. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think it is. It's so important. And I think, you know, as children get older and even, you know, I think that was a huge uh, learning experience for me when we had those kids in our home is just how curious they are and they'll ask questions. And um, a lot of times it, it is about family and it's sort of having that mindset, you know, at the end of the day. What are our answers going to be and holding ourselves accountable for, you know, you know, when it comes to cost of what recommendations are we ha- making in court and why are we making those recommendations and how are we really advocating? And if we're pushing materialistic um, things over those family ties, then, um, you know, how would the child feel about that? If it's, you know, well, we kind of push pushed this way um, because, you know, they had more things. I mean, I... I know the kids that were in our home would say over and over again, they didn't, I mean, they didn't care about that stuff. They wanted to be with their siblings, with their family. And so I just think it's so crucial to have that kind of at the forefront of any decision we're making.
0: Amen. Uh, Naomi, thank you so much for this conversation. Before we wrap up, any final thoughts that you want to add?
1: Yeah, no, I think, and I'm, again, so honored to be a part of this conversation and my hope is just as we continue to shift that every um, every person at the table feels valued in kind of their place in the system and their role that they're in. And so I hope everyone feels like their voice is heard and um, listened to. And I feel like the more collaboratively we can work together, the better.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Naomi. And thank you everyone so much for tuning in. Thanks for listening to CASA on the go. Join us next time for more dynamic continuing education brought to you by Texas CASA.